Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. But when Jesus came, he wasn't talking about this kind of judgment, national judgment, nations and things like this. He was talking about you and me. He was bringing it home to you and me, my heart, your heart. How many of us could confidently expound the virtues of God? Do you see God as a judge, one who delivers justice, one who will right all wrongs and bring salvation to those who call on his name? Tonight may well challenge your thinking as Dr. Corbett tells it how it really is, concluding his seven-part series on the subject of God. With the final in the series, let's join Dr. Corbett now for God the Judge. Father, as we do two great things this morning, we open your word and we reflect on you. Lord, I pray that you would, you would speak by your spirit. Father, there may be some watching and listening and present here now who've never experienced your voice. And I pray that in this moment, they would hear your voice speaking into their soul. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been talking about God, and this is the seventh installment in the series on God. And, and in some ways, I feel kind of dumb, because if you're going to talk about God, how many times could you talk about God and exhaust the topic? The answer is, you never can. You could never do that. So the fact that this is the seventh is just me trying to summarize things so let me see if I can do that what have we seen about God so far you'll notice the artwork that I've used in the background features the Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel um, God and man connecting and it's a it's a beautiful sentiment but what have we seen so far let me use uh, I'm, I'm not trying to use big words but I'll try to explain them but God is, this is what we've seen, God is the uncaused first cause. So whenever someone says, yes, but who made God? No matter where you start, someone, somehow, something kick-started everything. And whoever that is, that's God. And it doesn't matter uh, whether you believe God or not. At some point, you have to figure out how did the very first molecule in the universe begin. And whatever your answer is, whatever was before there was anything you're already in the realm of God. Robert Jastrow was an astrophysicist and he spent years trying to figure out some of these big picture topics, some of these big issues. And eventually he came to the realisation and he described it this way. He said, it's like we astrophysicists and scientists have been clawing our way up a mountain. We've wrestled with snow and we've wrestled with falling rocks and we've wrestled with the climate and the cold and all the rest of it and we've traversed our way to the very top of the mountain and we get there and we find that there's a campsite there and there's a bunch of Bible-believing theologians already there with a fire happening saying, oh, what took you so long? And they said, that's how it feels when you're trying as a scientist to explain God away. No matter how hard you try, eventually you have to acknowledge something caused the universe. And that something must have been in itself uncaused. What do we call the first cause? We call that the creator. And we know 
that God is the creator. That's the first thing. And that's without a Bible verse. That's just sitting and thinking it through. Secondly, what else do we notice about God? And again, you don't particularly need a Bible verse to think about this, but we've got plenty to back it up. And it's this, that God exhibits personal traits. What do we mean by personal traits? God exhibits planning. God exhibits will, the ability to choose to do something or not to do something. That's will. The ability to be creative. I mean, why did God create colour? Why did he do that? I look out at my, my window in my kitchen and we have some flowers that, that they flower at the end of the day and then in the morning they close up. They're not sunflowers, they're, they're, they're a, a, a bulbous flower and they, they kind of look like an orchid which is one of the most beautiful flowers. And I look at these things and they're now sp- sort of spreading and so I'll see these things at the end of the day open up and I'll go, look at that, cream, mauve, blue, yellow, all in that flower. And I think, why did God do that? Why did God do that? You know why he did that? Not only is he creative, he's artistic and creative. Thank God. He does things with beauty. So he expresses creativity. And he also expresses emotions. We read in Genesis chapter 1 that when God created in those six stages of creation the first five it says that he looked at it and he took pleasure in it it says it this way he looked at it and he said that's good that's good that's an emotion right when you respond like that that's an emotion God has emotions and when he created mankind our forefathers he looked at them and his emotion went up a level remember what it says in Genesis he didn't say it was good what did he say it was very good very good you might want to just, if you're a husband or a wife, you might want to look at your spouse and go, give them that look that is like, very good. Ah, oh, it's just touching, isn't it? It's just touching. <laughs> Thirdly, what else do we see about God? We see this, he, he has to be the eternal being. But not only that, we see that God is eternally existent. One being eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Now, let's tie some of these first three things together. He created everything. His personality is reflected in what he's created. And he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, not the Son. The Son, not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not Jesus. They are distinct And yet together they are one. I mentioned that the Hebrew word in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 is not the Hebrew word for one, two, three. It's the Hebrew word echad, echad, one, as in take different, bring them together and make one. That's the word, hero Israel, the Lord our God is echad, one. I want to illustrate this. I've asked Joe if I can use his guitar and he said, do you know how to play it? I said, does that matter? And he said, no problem, so... I do need audio, uh, please. Is, is it what? Okay, all right, cool. Um, I probably should hold it the other way, right? Which is top. So if the universe was created by a God who was monolithic, 
This would be the top song today. Can you all hear that? Yeah, 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 yeah. One note, right? Because if it was one being monolithic, everything would reflect him as creator. One, 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 right? You want to join in? But if the universe is truly a reflection of who God is, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Hear that? Different notes, but it makes one chord. Yeah, Joe's saying, okay, put my guitar down, be careful. (laughs) But the point there is that the universe reflects that as well. Our world reflects that. You walk through a forest and it's not just one plant, not just one tree. It's different. Right now in this room, there are different people. Different facial features, different body shapes, different hair colour, different amounts of hair. Different... (laughs) And it's a beautiful thing. I mean, can you imagine how exciting the world would be if everybody was exactly like you? Would you all agree? If the world was like you? Probably not. And the universe reflects Father, Son and Holy Spirit. In fact, I've said it before that, that marriage is the closest thing to reflecting that which is why I think the enemy, Satan, wants to destroy and distort marriage so violently. Fourthly, when God created mankind, he created mankind as the crown of his creation. Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. What is man that you are mindful of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, it says in Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is what's called the crown of creation psalm. It describes our unique place in the world of creation. But when mankind was created as a crown of creation, we as people, as much as the universe reflects Father, Son and Holy Spirit, as much as the the universe reflects diversity bringing harmony, we have us uniquely reflecting who God is. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That image of God, that ability to do those things that we mentioned before is, is uniquely in us. Animals don't plan for the future. You ever seen animals with a refrigerator? Who said yes? Don't, what? What are you calling your dad? You're calling your dad an animal. Um, Because we as humans, we plan, we think ahead. And same as God, we're created in his image. We as humans have an ability to create there are plenty of crafty people in this church and there are, there are also plenty of people who do craft. Think about it. Um, there are, <laughs> we, we as human beings have the ability to express emotions. In fact, one of the emotions I'm going to refer to either directly or indirectly today in this message is the emotion of anger. Has anyone ever been angry? Yes. Yes. Did you want to think about it? And... I'm going to suggest to you that we're created 
in the image of a God who has the range of emotions that we have, except there's a couple, there's a couple of emotions that God has never had that we have. One is surprise. Kim mentioned last week about surprise. We can all look surprised. If you turn to the person on your left and look surprised, you'll notice that they're turning to their left and they won't look at you. (laughs) But we experience joy, we experience sadness, we experience anger because we're created in in the image of a God who has those range of emotions. We bear that image and and if you remember Dr Hugh Ross being here uh, five years ago uh, and he'll be here with us in in Easter uh, coming up he he is um, 47 on the autism spectrum he and it only goes up to 50 and he has a couple of incredible abilities one of them is his his head for maths and science is just crazy and he has this other ability, and that is an ability to connect with animals. I've never, ever seen anyone like Hugh Ross who can connect with animals. He, and he told us some of the stories where he's gone off into the mountains, into the woods, and camped for days on end. And he said eventually the wild animals will come and eat out of his hand. He just has that bond with animals. And, and he, he says that that this is based on his understanding of the Bible where it, where it says that we're the crown of creation. God has created us and animals are created to bring humans pleasure. And so somehow he's figured that out and he says that some animals will even, some dogs will even mimic the facial expression of their owners. Now that's pretty weird because I'm sure that there's all sorts of YouTube clips now where you can actually see owners and their dogs, you know, the ponytails, the poodle, you know, that kind of thing. And what he says is that when it looks like a dog is smiling, they're just trying to imitate your face, which may be good news for you or maybe bad news for you. But the the point there is that animals don't express the range of emotions that we have. We are unique as we we bear. The other thing that makes us unique and, and as we bear the image of God is this. God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. He has always been Father, Son, one being Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And he has always been in that community. And that community is a, is in a, a relationship called a covenant. And a covenant is... I am yours, you are mine. That's exactly, again, what marriage is all about. And it's the idea that a covenant is not meant to be broken. It's not meant to be broken until parted by death, we say, in a wedding ceremony. And so God has created us to be in, a, in relationships where we expect that our parents will be dependable, that our spouse will be dependable, Our children will be dependable because we're created in the image of a covenant-keeping God. So we're also created in that image with that trait to desire a unique covenant relationship. I said before about my 28-year-old son. I mean, that's in one sense I'm sort of joking, but in another sense he's in pain and I'm feeling his pain too as a dad and this is not rare these days for people who long for that relationship that they are longing for not to have it yet so I get that 
But I think that ache is because we're created in the image of God. So, what else do we know about man being created in the image of God? I mentioned that God has a will. He can choose, freely choose. And mankind can freely choose. But here's the problem. Here's the fifth thing that we see about God. Because when mankind freely chose to disobey God, our hearts, our forefathers' hearts became dull to the law of God. Now this might sound, well, what's that got to do with, with God? Because, well, how would you respond if you were God? And this is the next thing. This is how, well, this is what we know about God. When this happened, we see this, that God set a plan in motion to redeem, that is to rescue mankind and to rescue them from the deadly grip of sin. And that deadly grip of sin is a grip that deceives it twists people's minds. Kim and I watched a, a movie, sort of a docudrama thing yesterday about the first guy to basically invent meteorology. And he used a hot air balloon to figure out that there were different stratospheres and things and, and pressure bars and so on. But he was warned, you get to a certain height in the atmosphere, this is in 1880, you get to a certain height and the oxygen will change and it will mess with your head and you will no longer, no longer have a grip on reality. And he went up with another person who was accustomed to ballooning and they had seen this. In fact, it had had a tragic end. And so when they saw this in this person, they said to them, you are experiencing this. You are experiencing reality being distorted because of the chemicals you're breathing in or the lack of sin does something like that too it deceives it tricks how do you know if you're self-deceived how would you know because you're self-deceived how could you know and this is what sin does so sin is a deadly disease and it deceives it deceives so God has done something about it and this is what he's done. He has set in motion this plan of redemption to rescue mankind by doing this, to expose the deception of sin in every human heart by giving his law and by giving penalties for his law. So, for example, in Romans chapter 7, it says this, I would not have known what sin was unless the law had said, do not murder, do not steal. So God gave his law to expose the true condition of our heart. This is kindness, this is not cruelness, this is not God playing cat and mouse with us. And the eighth thing we see, God the Father sent his son as the ultimate, the culmination of that redemption plan. And that when Jesus came, the Son of God came, he revealed the heart of his Father. And the heart of his Father was a Father heart. And, and as we've, we've said in every instance where Jesus prayed, only once did he not pray by initiating the prayer with Father, Father. Only once did he not say that. And that was on the cross. Eloi, Eloi, Saba, Takthani. Why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the only time he didn't refer to God as his Father. And the ninth thing we see here is that Jesus Christ revealed something about God that was unique in human history. Never before had this been heard of. You see, we could, 
And I've heard people say Jesus came and he brought a new understanding of God as the Father. But if you go in the Old Testament, you'll actually find they, they kind of got it. There were people who refer to God as Father, but Jesus really drove it home. But this one, they, they didn't get it all. And Jesus brought it as a, look, just, let's just turn the page. I want to show you this about God. And this is it. That God will be a just God. Just in the sense of justice. He will be a just God. So this is what I want to look at now. This is the, this, that's the recap. This is the seventh installment in our series. The just God. I looked for pictures of seraphim. They're hard to come by, actually. I can only find artists' impressions. So if you'll run with me a little bit. These two angelic-looking creatures who I've now entered into the artwork are called seraphim. Well, I'm going to call seraphim. Seraphim are described in Isaiah chapter 6. They are worship-leading angels. Whenever you hear a Hebrew word that ends in im, seraphim, it's the same as what the letter S in English does for us. We say one cat, we say two cats. In Hebrew, they say seraph, one seraph, two seraphim. So the seraphim... Are above the, it says above the throne of God, so that all heaven can see them leading heaven in worship. They must be big. They must be big. Like, did I say big? I meant big. And it says that they have six wings, two in the middle with which they cover their eyes because they're not worthy to look directly at the glory of God. Two with which they cover their feet because they're not worthy to stand in his presence. And two with which they are lifted up and lead all heaven in worship. And they must be majestic creatures. So that, that's, that's the artwork I'm introducing here as we talk about now. God the judge. God the judge. Now I, I'm going to make a point that this is good news. This is really good news. And, and the reason I'm saying it's good news is, and this is why I asked, have you ever felt angry? And I'm going to tell you that your sense of anger is always a sense of injustice. Whenever you feel angry, it's always because you sense injustice, something wrong. So the prophet Isaiah said this, the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. He's almost summarized the series so far with all of these aspects of God. So the ancients did have a concept of God as judge. They did. But generally, it was God who judges the nations. And it was the God who entered into national history in the sense that when Israel sinned, we see that the Assyrians came and judged, God used them and judged them. That was God being judged. Later on, when the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, known as Judea, when they sinned and they walked away from God, God judged them and brought in the Babylonians and judged them. So that was the concept of judgment, that God did it here and now. And generally, if you're a part of a nation, we're all in. It's all, if, if we sin, we get judged. That's the deal. That's how they saw it. Jesus came and gave quite a different concept. But we see this concept all through the Psalms. 
This is a beautiful psalm in uh, Psalm 37, verse 7. Psalm 37 is one of my favourite psalms. And it says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Can you see, hear the injustice? Hear the psalmist saying, the psalmist saying, God will judge because there's injustice. He will, and and the, idea, the concept is he'll do it here and now. This will happen here and now. So people longed for God to judge on their behalf. We read in the Old Testament, here and now. And that's what we mean by temporal, here and now. And for God to come and bring justice to their cause. They longed for that. So we, we read in Psalm 13, there's only six verses here in Psalm 13. And, we, and, and this is typical of the psalmist's cry for justice. When, when the psalmist feels this is not right, this is not fair, how do you let them get away with it, God? It's not right. So we read the psalmist say, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. This is... This is pretty amazing. This is David. And he had occasion, and in my, my own personal reading, I'm up to, um, uh, back through the Bible again, I'm up to uh, first, uh, sorry, Second Samuel, where Absalom, his son, has betrayed David and, and taken over. And David is probably praying this psalm now. How long are you going to let my enemy, who was his own son, his betrayer, get victory over him? But this is what David had learnt through his life. Yet I know, he says, I, that, that if I trust you, if I trust in your steadfast love, I shall rejoice in your salvation. And we hear salvation and we hear born again. <laughs> but salvation in the Old Testament was God rescuing. God rescuing them here and now. And so David would say this, I will sing to the Lord. Because he has dealt bountifully with me. And David's idea of that was here and now. But when Jesus came, he wasn't talking about this kind of judgment. National judgment, nations and things like this. He was talking about you and me. He was bringing it home to you and me. My heart, your heart. So he revealed that ultimately God was going to judge individuals. And not just here and now. Yes, here and now, but not just here and now. He was going to judge individuals eternally. In other words, the consequences would never end. So he said this in Matthew chapter 10. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of, the day of judgment. What? What? This concept, the day of judgment, occurs in Jesus' preaching over and over and over again. It's never heard of in the Old Testament. 
He now introduces it. And if you're a Christian, if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, you probably go, well, yeah, of course there's a day of judgment. Of, of course God's going to judge individuals. But bring yourself back to when Jesus is walking the shores of Galilee. This was brand new. They'd never heard this before. The day of judgment. And he says, for the land of, more bearable on the day of judgment, for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Holy dooly, mate. If, it's, if what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah is, is going to be a walk in the park compared to what awaited that town that rejected Jesus on, the day, on that day of judgment, wowzers. He goes on, he says, I tell you on the day of judgment, there it is again, Matthew 12, verse 36. Now, by the way, before we read this, if you've never said anything wrong, don't worry about this verse. It just doesn't affect you. If you've never said anything hurtful, you've never said anything really, really dumb and cutting, and you've never lied, don't worry about it, just ignore it. Just ignore it. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. What do we say to that? Uh Uh-oh, you say amen, I say, (laughs) man, as someone who has said some dumb and hurtful things in my time, um, this is a wake-up call. That's all we have time for tonight, but for a CD copy or premium download of tonight's discussion, please go to our website, findingtruthmatters.org, and select the God Series Part 7 from our online store. As we've heard tonight, the apostles warned their hearers of God's coming judgment, especially for those who rejected God's offer of forgiveness. Now, because Satan hates God's image bearers, he aggressively seeks to deceive us about that coming judgment. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.